Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's podcast is about conquering candida in women and men. Candida overgrowth or hypersensitivity is a medical condition affecting thousands of people of both sexes. It is poorly understood by conventionally trained allopathic physicians, and thus it's underdiagnosed or worse, ignored or disbelieved to even exist. This is so frustrating to patients who believe they suffer with this illness. In my own practice at Mitchell Medical Group in New York City, I see patients every day, many of who are now coming from other states to get diagnosed and treated for candida. Fortunately, today's guest, Dr. Marjorie Crandell, is uniquely qualified to explain candida to medical professionals and the public. Her 40 years of research on candida and being a candida sufferer herself gives her unique insight like nobody else that I know. Dr. Crindell started her scientific career as an infectious disease researcher at UCLA. However, her professional career took a turn when she developed the chronic candida infections herself in her 30s. And despite having access to top medical specialists, she struggled with horrendous pain and discomfort. And then she decided, after numerous disappointments, to take things into her own hands and turn her research to focus on candida and fungal infections. She has published 27 scientific papers in scientific journals, and I believe, in my estimation, her greatest contribution to medical science is her written material that's going to be coming a book that she utilizes through her yeast consulting services, which has been a resource for thousands of women and men struggling to help to get candida under control. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Crandell to the podcast. Hi. Um, I, that was a very nice introduction. I appreciate that. You deserve it. One thing I want to start off with before we go into any questions is one of the things you put in your written material, which I love, is that first listeners must know how to pronounce this condition correctly. It's candida, not candida, as you like to point out, sort of like that whole Kamala Harris thing. So um, I think it's important because, like as you said, people sound more intelligent and scientific when they pronounce things the correct way. Would you agree? Absolutely. It's a losing battle, but I, I never give up. <laughs> <laughs> and so you haven't. Okay. I think the pronunciation candida, is it's actually a woman's name in Spanish. I think you're right. I know. But, you know, patients are embarrassed sometimes, too. They're like, am I saying this right? And, you know, obviously it's not the most important thing, but... Anyway, I thought I'd just toss that out to, for a little light humor before we really get started into the key stuff. So, Dr. Crandell, the first thing we really have to deal with is that I have so many patients that I see in my office that are in tears, not just from their physical pain, but from the pain of not being believed that they have an illness. And they are told by, again, their conventional allopathic physicians that this is all made up. It's nonsense. What do you tell the patients that are calling you for help? How do you explain to them why their doctors seem to be in the dark about candida? 
Well, I, I explain that a lot of the academic physicians who work in the hospitals diagnosing the serious diseases that spread throughout your whole body, they wrote negative position statements saying that the chronic uh, intestinal candidiasis doesn't exist, and yet that's how the disseminated the form of candidiasis first develops from intestinal overgrowth of yeast that spreads into the bloodstream and then throughout the whole body. So their negative position statements don't agree with the scientific papers, and yet I think that they publish these negative position statements because they get scooped by the uh, physicians, uh, Dr. Crook and, and Dr. Truss, who wrote books about this chronic candidiasis. And the academic uh, scientists didn't like the idea of, of a lowly community physician, in quotes, scoop them with this discovery of this uh, disease, which is located in the gut, and yet the symptoms can be systemic. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, for our patients, it became a political battle. I know, in fact, even for a long time, one of the associations that I belong to, the Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, they like would constantly put out statements, this is a bogus diagnosis, it doesn't exist. And what I think, I'd like to get your opinion about this, I sort of picked out two or three things that I think that have been a, the huge problem why patients are, are, are not being heard by the, their physicians. I think, one, there's a huge misunderstanding between invasive candida in immune-compromised patients, like an AIDS patient or somebody on chemotherapy, and what you discuss a lot about with candida overgrowth in an immune-competent person. So that's one thing, which maybe we'll go into. The other one is, let's be real about this. For a long time, holistic doctors feared for their medical license if they even diagnosed or tried to test a patient for candida. And the other, the last thing which I find, which I find so unbelievable, is that so many doctors, when Crook's work came out, you know, Dr. Crook, that here was a condition that had multiple symptoms. The doctors were like, no condition can have all these different symptoms, which we know is not true. I mean, if you look at celiac disease, celiac disease can prevent with dermatitis, it can present with brain fog, it, besides the stomach, with joint pain. So I, all of these reasons, I think, in my opinion, have led to the confusion. Do, do you see it similarly? Oh, I couldn't have said it any better than you just said it. <laughs> okay, well, sometimes I want to really make it clear for the listeners, because again, the tide has turned for sure. I mean, patients now are taking more control and power, but I can remember years ago, like, I'm being told this doesn't exist. Why do you believe it? You know, those type of questions, which I have to answer every day. So that's why I gave a lot of thought to these answers, because <laughs> I have to deal with it. And I want patients to have confidence and trust that I can help them. But I, I want to now touch on something that you just brought up, and it has to do even with your own personal medical journey. Dr. Crandell, I want to ask you, at what point in your own medical journey did you decide that, gosh, I am not getting the relief from these board-certified conventional physicians that I'm going to see, and I have to begin to help myself. And fortunately, you are uniquely qualified in some ways being a scientific researcher to do this. So when, 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 did it, when was your final, like, I'm not going to another gynecologist, urologist, whatever, 
that you said, now, now I'm taking control? Well, it was when the two books came out, the Dr. Crook's book and Dr. Tress's book in 1983, both of them. Right. And at the time, just coincidentally, I had been treated for multiple sclerosis. I had lost the sight in my left eye and I had areas of numbness and speech problems. And I went on prednisolone, which reduces your immunity in addition to treating the multiple sclerosis symptoms. And I regained my eyesight and I came out of this acute phase of MS. But I also had yeast coming out of every orifice. And at the same time, I was reading these books and it was very much in the the news in, in uh, scientific journals and on the internet. And so actually, I didn't have trouble with doctors. My doctors were very kind to me. And at the time, I went on Nizoral long term. Who prescribed that? A doctor prescribed that for you? Oh, for the uh, for the vaginal yeast infection? A regular uh, primary care physician. Okay. And I asked him for the test. I was very high on uh, blood antibodies against candida. And so he accepted my diagnosis because I was on the faculty as a researcher in, in UCLA, infectious diseases. And so he said, okay, you know, so he prescribed Nizoral. At that time, Diflucan was, didn't exist. And I stayed on that for nine months off and on. It, it's, it's very, I hate to use the word toxic, but it's a difficult medication and I'd have to go off it for a week or two and then go back on it when I regain my equilibrium. And at the time, I didn't realize I should have also taken the Nystatin to treat the intestine in addition to the, the Nizoral, which is a systemic drug. So now I recommend to patients who call me for consults to take both, a systemic antifungal plus the yeah. oral Nystatin, which is not absorbed, so it stays in the intestine, treats the it's that are in the lumen, which is the hole yeah, that where makes the sense. food and, and the feces are. Yeah. Before we go into treatment, I want to go over a few things too, if it's okay. Because actually, you did, you did touch on something that I wanted to get into: the risk factors. Again, you know, the more I see candidate patients in my office, the more, gosh, easier and obvious it becomes to me because they all have pretty much very similar histories. Somewhere along the line, they were exposed to prolonged courses of antibiotics or they were on long courses of cortisone. Yeah, steroids. Right. The other thing which I think the public is not really very aware of is acid blockers. And unfortunately, that since so many of the proton pump inhibitors like Nexium and Prilosec are now over-the-counter, you don't need a prescription, patients can also, again, without really supervision, continually to take these medications, not realizing that it lowers the pH in their stomach and, again, sets up a perfect milieu for candida and yeast to overgrow. Actually, it raises the pH. I'm sorry, right, raises the making it alkaline. That's what, that's what I meant. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for Chris. Yeah, See, that's I why agree. I'm so glad. That's why so I'm glad I'm with a scientist right now. They won't let me. I can't get away with one little slip. And another <laughs> thing which you really bring out, which is important, again, so many of my patients are on birth control pills. And again, by increasing the estrogen in the system that you've pointed out in your work also, 
raises the risk for candida? Yeah, that's that's a risk factor. And now we have a new one. Some of these new diabetic drugs cause genital yeast infections, and it's on the the diabetic drugs themselves. On TV, I've noticed. Really, why would that happen? Because thinking if it supposedly lowers the sugar. Wouldn't that decrease the... Well, it dumps the sugar into the urine. Oh, okay. And then when people urinate, the the urine comes in contact with the genital area. And so you get sugar at a higher level there. Okay. These are obviously what I call the main risk factors that I see in everyday practice. I mean, there are obviously there are other ones, which we'll get into later into the podcast. But I wanted listeners, people who think they may have candida, to understand that these are typically what we see and sometimes in combination. And sometimes there's that perfect storm where a patient has an extremely stressful, either emotional, stressful situation, or that stress could be a physical, like a surgery that they're recuperating from. And again, that perfect storm of antibiotics, possibly steroids with the stress, wreak havoc with their uh, immune system and their cortisol levels that allow the yeast to overgrow in different areas. Absolutely. And I'm sure that every doctor knows what you just said, that these are the main risk factors for yeast infections. But they are ignoring and and denying the existence of this yeast overgrowth syndrome because they get notices from their medical associations saying that these academic physicians publish these negative position statement saying that, that the E syndrome doesn't exist. And so they follow that because they're afraid if they start treating for yeast, testing and treating, that they're going to lose their medical license. In fact, I was an expert witness for one doctor who was brought up in charges by the State Medical Board in New York. Yeah, I remember, I remember hearing about that. That was about, like, yeah, about 20 years ago. But, you know, one of yeah. the things which is really important, and this is what I, again, when I, I'm actually giving a lecture on candidate this coming weekend in uh, New York at a conference, which is really nice there. It's really being presented by the Science of Human Optimization at the Westin Hotel here in New York City. But what I think a lot of, even also doctors in a, a lot of different areas, whether it's general doctors or even specialists, don't understand immunology. And the issue is that they don't understand that if you can still be what we call immune competent, meaning supposedly have a normal immune system, you don't have to have AIDS or have been on chemotherapy, but that these medications, antibiotics, acid blockers, whatever, cause an imbalance in the microbiome. And this is what allows the yeast to overgrow. And when I explain, right? When I explain this to doctors, and of course when I explain it to patients, they they get it. They understand. Oh, that makes sense. And and we're going to delve into this whole difference between an invasive infection and hypersensitivity. So you know, well, I, not everybody is hypersensitive. Well, let's let's talk about it this way. When you say when you have overgrowth, whether it's candida, whether it's staph on your skin, when I say hypersensitivity, this causes inflammation. And that's why, just to give an example for people to understand better, let's say with eczema, adults or children with eczema tend to have overgrowth of staph on their skin, and that staph in itself promotes inflammation because it's overgrowing on broken skin. The same way with candida, when, again, the right opportunity is there, it's going to overgrow, as you mentioned in, in your, a lot of your materials, in the intestine area, which is the main area of the gut. And then it's what's called leaky gut, 
it gets through the permeable, you know, the permeable wall in the intestine and it starts going to places, whether it's the vaginal area or the bladder and the, the ureters, so that people are getting cystitis. I see a lot of cases of sinusitis. Do you have disagreement on that? Well, only a small percentage of the patients are actually allergic. In other words, that they have IgE antibodies. That's the term I use for well, hypersensitivity. No, I'll, I'll disagree with you. And again, I, I respect so much your position. But I'm going to say it this way, again, with my immunology background. Hypersensitivity doesn't have to be IgE. It's what I would call sometimes in cases too delayed hypersensitivity. So it's a T-cell issue. But... You're right. You know, but I think there's actually both. But I don't want to get too. Actually, I want to lead up to. I want to lead up to the next thing because it's something that you emphasize so much again in your written material and your work. Because the controversy with Candida, by the way, also the other one thing we left off is that physicians are frustrated when they don't have a quote specific test to make the diagnosis. I mean, if you have an autoimmune disease, they want to see do you have a positive rheumatoid factor for rheumatoid arthritis, or do you have a positive. Now we have celiac antibody tests, and candida is a lot trickier. So I'm going to say this, and then I want to get your input. I mean, I think like most medical conditions, again, being a clinician, the history is critical. And Dr. Crook came up with a very extensive questionnaire, which I find to be very interesting and helpful. You mentioned in your book, uh, Dr. Santelman actually narrowed it down to just seven questions based on research studies showing that this also could be a good way to come to a diagnosis for candida? Well, that's a screening test. Okay. Based on symptoms. Okay. And it just says this patient might have it. That's right. But there are tests that were proven in controlled clinical studies, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical studies of testing for anti-candida antibodies and also candida immune complexes. And those tests were developed during the 1980s and 1990s after Crook's book and and Tress's book came out, which, as you said, were based on clinical symptoms and the history and the risk factors. So you can make a clinical diagnosis without the tests, but there are tests that are scientifically proven and publish it in the literature. It's just that most of the journals where those studies were published are what you call obscure. They're not the main journals. And so most of the doctors have never seen these things. But when my book comes out, it has all the complete references. Over 500 controlled clinical studies are published in my book. And so those will give you the journals where these studies were published that, first of all, have produced diagnostic tests, anti-candida antibody levels in the blood for an overgrowth of yeast in the intestine, and then also uh, studies of treatment. And Sandelman's paper showed that the seven symptoms out of uh, Crook's questionnaire point to this disease, and he did a placebo-controlled study on treatment with Nystatin and picked the, the patients who responded to Nystatin 
had those seven symptoms. Yeah, I, I saw that. I thought his was a little bit limited, but I mean, again, it could be a very good screening test. The one other thing too I should point out, which again shows you the bizarre nature and, and politics and everything in medicine. You know, in New York State, for example, you're really not even allowed to order Candida antibody tests. So it just shows you how, again, oh. how yeah, so how things can be very political. I want to mention a few other tests just to get your your opinion on them. Now, again, when I have patients come in all the time, I don't obviously do this test in my office, but they call it the spit test or the saliva test. Oh. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Uh, they say something that's yeah. nonsense. Okay. Well, I want to. I, again, that's what I've said to patients. Well, I don't like to use that term nonsense because I. But I again, I haven't seen anything scientific. I never saw a paper on that. So okay, so that one's not in the Dr. Crandell book. Skin testing, which I learned from you, and I, I want to just actually tell you something interesting, and and this is one of the things that how I actually connected to you years ago, believe it or not. I want to remind you about this. When I did training over 25 years ago in the hospital in New York City, it was at the height of the AIDS epidemic, and when patients used to get come to the emergency room and they were admitted, it was just the beginning of the development of sophisticated T-cell tests like CD4, CD3, all that, those things that we, we monitor today, which is we take for granted. So what we were doing back in that day was we did what was called a delayed hypersensitivity panel, which was skin tests, which we put on the patient's arm that were for measles, mumps, and candida. Now, almost everybody's been exposed to measles and mumps, and candida, we're all supposed to, we'll get to this, supposed to have this in our system. That's normal within reasonable levels. And the way we were using this test was if we put the skin test on the patient, let's say on a Monday, and there was obviously no reaction because there was no immediate reaction, two days later, we would go to check the patient's arm and a normal person, quote, with a normal immune system should show reactions to measles, mumps, you know, with a little bit of swelling and candida. So that was normal. What I started to think about when I saw one of your papers or from your literature was that when you get an immediate reaction to the candida test or to trichophyton, that to me tells me it's an immediate hypersensitivity reaction or with the overgrowth. So that's how I've utilized that test where I've seen helps me really distinguish patients that I believe have candida and want to see with their own eyes. What's your feeling on the skin testing still for candidate evaluation? Well, you're right. The normal reaction is a swelling that's skin-colored. It's not red after two days, and it's due to an infiltration of T-cells that are active against candida, and they recognize the candida antigen in the skin, and they migrate towards that. So that's normal. The negative swelling or induration is an indication that the T-cells are not active against candida, and so they have low immunity or they, right, they, don't, right. mm-hmm. they, they have a negative uh, delayed hypersensitivity. Right. Again, and we were seeing that in AIDS patients or people with yeah. some type of psoriasis. Yeah, but what happens know. when they have the immediate reaction? Like, let's say I'm doing a lot of candida skin testing and trichophyton testing in the office, and within 10 minutes with a lot of these patients that have obviously a good history, which is obviously essential to match up, I'm seeing large what we call indurated swelling reactions. Yeah, they're allergic. They're allergic. They have IgE against the trichophyton or the candida. And 
the allergic reaction causes swelling, inflammation, redness, and that actually inhibits the migration of T cells to the area. So if you have an immediate reaction, it's positive for IgE, and you'll have a negative reaction for the delayed hypersensitivity because the, the T cells never get there because of the histamine inhibits migration. What do you think about the stool testing? You know, now there's a company, Genova makes a comprehensive stool test, which does check for candida, but we do all have candida in our body. So does that mean something to you? Obviously, if it's extremely high, just the fact that someone has candida in their stool, should that be of alarm to a patient? Well, you have to do some kind of testing on patients. So you can't start criticizing the test before you even do it. It's important to do a culture for candida, whether it's low or high, if it's there, it, it could mean that there's an overgrowth and you just uh, picked a wrong random sample of, of stool to test. But the important thing is to identify the species because you can tell a certain species are resistant to diflucan, which is the drug of first choice, and then you you should also order antifungal susceptibility to find out what is the best drug for that bug. Well, that can take many weeks, though, too. Isn't that correct? Like, when you're trying to culture out fungi, that, that could take up to, like, six weeks. Isn't that correct? Well, the, the fungi oftentimes have a delayed reaction before they start to grow in culture, but uh, yeast grow overnight. I mean, I was a yeast researcher. I studied yeast. Right, right. I was going to get to that. I actually researched for all my studies. Yeah. Well, uh, well. One other thing before I get into that too, because I, I did want to speak about that. I just kind of glossed over because we were getting to so many other interesting things. But now, the you know, one of the areas where it's probably the most direct area, and I think physicians do believe, obviously, is when women get candida vaginitis. And one of the tests I like to use in my office or have patients bring in from their gynecologist is the new swab DNA testing, because that does test for the different organisms, and it also gives you an idea if it's candida albicans versus candida glabrata, which a lot of patients are concerned about, because that's a little more difficult to treat. Do you find that's probably one of the most direct, easiest to prove cases of candida? I think... Any test that's done will be useful. I haven't seen any comparative studies where they compare the the different commercial tests, so I can't say that's okay. the best one. But okay. I said you want to do a culture, identification of species, and antifungal susceptibility. And so a lot of times those those results will come back in a few days. Do you find it's beneficial then, let's say, the, obviously an easy area to culture is the tongue? Lots of times the patients have overgrowth of candida or what's called thrush. Do you find that to be useful for them to like culture? No, don't don't have a, that test. And I asked, I asked Who doesn't have that Genova, test? why not? Oh, yeah. And they said it's not called for because oh. you can diagnose thrush by looking at it. And if it's really bad, the dead tongue cells scrape off. Right. And it bleeds underneath. But there's another form of thrush or candida infection of the tongue where it's not white, it's red. And the inflammation that you were talking about earlier, and that's where the yeast are in the tissues, but they're not actively growing. They're just causing inflammation. 
And that also is a yeast infection. So there's two forms, the active uh, pseudomembranous candidiasis where you get the white tongue cells where the yeast actually kill the tongue cells, and then there's the red tongue where and, and the gums, Right, the chronic, yeah. All right, let me ask you, because again, again, you write about this beautifully, and I can't wait for that book to come out. You talk about essentially the different pillars. I think I have written down here the four pillars of candida treatment, antifungal medication, diet, immunotherapy, and supplements. And what I, one quote I love, I actually did this in a, a, a video or something, for my patients who are interested in candida, that you can't cure candida alone with diet because so many people, and I can't tell you how many patients I've seen over the years who will say, gosh, I've been on the candida diet for months, for years, and I see a little improvement, but not, not nothing dramatic. And what I loved when I've spoken to you in the past, when we've had some great conversations, where you're saying, you got to be treated. I mean, that's what, the, you know, there's just no other way around it, whether, and especially, you know, when we're talking about genital urinary symptoms like vaginitis or prostatitis in men or interstitial cystitis, especially in women, you mentioned, and you started to allude to it earlier on, you need medication. And you like to say, especially like in vaginitis, you need local and oral medication. Why do you think so many gynecologists are undertreating this condition? They haven't spent the last 30 years reading the scientific literature as I have. Okay. And so you feel, I know when talking to you, and I've seen some really actually great papers by a Dr. Sobel, I think is one of the leading people in, in research in chronic vaginitis, that, again, patients should be on some form of oral therapy, sometimes for up to six months. He does treat long-term, Yeah, but he doesn't use the trick that I have developed where you, you treat topically or intravaginally at the same time as oral systemic antifungals at the same time. Yeah, I like to adopt your trick because it seems to help my patients. Okay, so if we're talking about medications, we have to go through some of them because I want the public to understand. Now, the one that is widely used by gynecologists, I use it myself because it has a very good safety profile, is Diflucan. Some of the older ones uh, aren't used as much anymore, the Spornox or the Itraconazole. But as you pointed out in your in your work, those are, are static, meaning they, they inhibit the fungi, but they don't destroy them. Well, that's true of Diflucan also. Right, right. Still, I know my comfort zone. When I'm, when I'm treating an initial patient for candida, I'm, I'm frequently using the Diflucan initially, and then I'm also then usually transitioning them to Nystatin, which you had mentioned earlier, it's an oral antifungal that has a very high safety profile. I use it at the same time. Right. Oh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they treat different compartments or areas or sites in the body. The nystatin is not absorbed. That's why it's safe for pregnant women and babies and old people. Right. It stays in the intestine, and it only treats the yeast that are loose in the lumen where the food is and the, and the feces or the, the yeast that are attached to the surface of the intestinal wall, whereas the systemic drugs treat from the bloodstream into the tissue. They are systemic and they stay inside the tissue. So they're treating yeast in different parts of the intestine. Right, right. I know you, you've talked about it in your work also, and obviously as a researcher, you know that how candida has actually two different forms. It comes as a spore form 
and in hyphae form. You know, it, just for the for the listeners, when I was in training, we used to, especially on the skin, we'd do a scraping. If we thought there was a, um, a fungal dermatitis, we'd scrape it and put it under the microscope, and we'd look for what was called meatballs and spaghetti. <laughs> the, <laughs> right. Oh, that's, that's good. I haven't heard yeah, that Yeah, it, it really looks like it. You, you see the spores are little round things and surrounded by these hyphae that look like spaghetti. Yeah, but that's only for candida albicans. None oh, right. of the other yeast right, right. produce the hyphae. Yeah, we're not getting, right, I'm not going to get too fancy. But the hyphae is what, that's, is that what people are concerned about? It gets deeper into the tissue and it's harder to treat and, then, you know, that, and that's why there's the inadequate treatment and why you know, patients get only a few days, if they're lucky, of, of antifungal like Diflucan, they're still not better? Yes, that's one explanation for candida albicans because it's the only one that produces the hyphae. right. The yeast penetrate into the cells, the human cells, and grow intracellularly. Let me, I want to ask you, I'm going to give you two different cases that I've had in my practice, which I found interesting and, and challenging a bit. One case was a, a gentleman in his 30s who, again, after careful history and some of the risk factors, seemed to have intestinal candida overgrowth. And I treated him initially with Diflucan, and he's been on Nystatin. And he's been very concerned that he feels like, again, he still doesn't feel that his energy, his, his concentration are where they should be, and wanted me to use one of the newer sidal antifungals like posaconazole or vorconazole, which I was a little bit reluctant to. I guess as a doctor, you know, we're a little bit fearful of some of these antifungals. Some of them have a lot of side effects and I was wondering you're thinking when do you when do you go to one of these sidal medications when the oral systemic drugs aren't working so you you'd have to do a follow-up culture on the patient to see if the yeast have in fact decreased the number and also to do the antifungal susceptibility because they might have developed resistance to, you said they were on, on Diflucan? Yeah, yeah, we had them on Diflucan. We had them on Diflucan for a while and and the, and the statin. Yeah, so I can't emphasize doing the antifungal susceptibility test and you can you can test for the, some of the newer drugs at the same time. Would it be in from his stool? Is that what you're saying? Because he's got, let's say, intestinal. So you would have to send his stool culture out for the antifungal susceptibility. Is that correct? Yeah, you have to put on the order for the culture. You have to do the order, the reflux test. If the culture is positive, then to do the identification and the antifungal susceptibility. All three tests are really important, but most doctors don't do all three because of the expense. Yeah, right. So, you know, patients don't want to have to pay out of pocket. And I had another case of a woman in her early 30s, who happens to be a gynecologist. And she's been suffering with terrible candida vaginitis. And I've had to keep her on Diflucan for like a month straight, along with Nystatin. Any thoughts why... Well, oh, actually, I had an interesting story. We, we talked about this, but I want the listeners to, to be in on this. This is actually very, very important. So she's been on Diflucan for about a month. She's been also on Nystatin. Usually this is my regimen, you know, along with diet, which we're going to get to in just a minute because that's a big one to help patients. But she seemed to get flare-ups after having relations with her partner. And 
When I got a little bit more history, it turns out her partner was on an immune suppressant for inflammatory bowel disease. So my question is, which I want for the listeners, because this does come up a lot with people too, can, can you transmit candida from one to another? I mean, if your partner potentially is carrying candida from being slightly immune suppressed, can that worsen your patient's symptoms? Yes, of course. You can transfer the yeast back and forth between sexual partners like ping pong. You can. Okay. I just want to make that really clear because people always ask, you know, uh, first of all, they don't always know if their partner has candida. They obviously have to be tested. A lot of times the partner, especially if it's a guy, doesn't want to be tested. <laughs> and, you know, again, if you look at the risk factors, again, I mean, it's, it's a little more obvious when they're on a, a biologic medication that, that uh, depresses the immune system that they could be, a, quote, a carrier or having, you know, candida overgrowth, because it may not be obvious. They may not, you know, the, the part, let's say if it's a man, may not have, you know, rashes on in the genital urinary area, like on the penis. It might be internal. And then, you know, when they're having relations, that could set it off. Well, the drug is in the semen, mm. and that can also be transmitted and be right. suppressing well, her. Good point, good point, yeah. Yeah. Local immune system in the in the vagina. Would uh, obviously using condoms or something help enough for that, or it's still absolutely. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right, because if they're if the if the patient's on the birth control pill, but they're not having protected sex, then you know they're going to be exposed. All right, that's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, one other thing, too bad with the drugs. I mean, patients always come in and go, "I don't want to get die off. I don't want to get the Herxheimer reaction." Well, that that's easy. You start them on a very low dose. So uh, with Nystatin, you just take a pinch of the powder, or you you crush the tablet and take a pinch of of the crushed Nystatin tablet. With the the Diflucan, the same thing. You crush the tablet and just take a pinch to start with. Because some people, believe it or not, have die-off just from a, a small amount of... I've seen that. Of, I have to, yeah, I have to share something from my own personal experience. When I first started doing some of this work, it was interesting. You know, of course, I wanted to get patients better, and I started them on antifungals right away. And I'll never forget these stories. Like, I had one patient who didn't come back to me like for two months, and I, you know, I forgot about him. I was like seeing other patients. It was a man. And when I, he did come back, because he was having bad asthma, and his thrush came back, I said to him, what happened to you? I, I saw you like two months ago. We were, he goes, Dr. Mitchell, after you gave me that antifungal medication, I couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. And that was yeah. like, you know, my firsthand experience with it. What I've learned, I can share this with you, and I, I learned from some other clinicians out in California, your, your state, was that when I find, when I prep the patients also with vitamin therapy, where I, I'm able to boost their liver enzymes, like with NAD and glutathione, that I haven't had one case of the Herxheimer reaction despite using pretty good doses of antifungals. So that's my personal experience in helping patients and avoiding the Herxheimer or, quote, die-off reaction. Interesting. I haven't seen anything in the literature on that. There isn't. You know, those are the kind of things that, you know, you're never going to get sponsored or have the... It's really hard, Dr. Crandell. You know, sometimes some of these things as clinicians, we just have to do because if we wait till a double-blind placebo appears, you know, a lot more people are going to suffer. All right, we have to get to the last two things. Yes, go ahead. I want to emphasize something I've said to you before is you can publish what you just said about the vitamin therapy as a summary of patients. Yes. 
cases, which is not controlled clinical study, but it's a case. It's like case reports, right? Some summarized that give information as a, a start. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Observational. I love when I read, you know, my major journals. I really, I think it's a way overlooked these observational case reports because as doctors, we are very privileged to have this insight into so many people's lives, and by sharing it with our colleagues or whatever, you never know where you're going to help somebody. Anyway, I want to get to the Canada diet because that is. That incites fury <laughs> with the medical community and sometimes with patients. You know, they say that there's nothing in the literature and that I cite a lot of papers about diet that have been published in scientific journals and they show that the diet does decrease symptoms, but it doesn't cure. Well, right. I like to use that term that you've, I think that you've made popular in my mind. You can't cure cancer with diet alone. But I want to say something first, which I think is so important. Back in the day, and we can talk about 15 or 20 years ago, if you put somebody on a candida diet, the patients thought you were crazy, your colleagues thought you were crazy, nobody was too happy about it. Then what happened? Gluten, and I did a podcast about this. Gluten became the enemy, <laughs> thanks to celebrities. That gluten is bad. Celiac disease, you know, is caused by you know gluten. Gluten in general is bad for everybody. So all of a sudden, the, the the wave changed. So from you know not eating bread and avoiding pasta and everything too, that became like the cool thing, like celebrities. But and so now it's easier to recommend the candida diet, which we'll discuss in a minute to patients which essentially means avoiding sugar. We're going to go through each one of these. Avoiding sugar, avoiding wheat, avoiding dairy and alcohol, at least initially, till you can get that rebalancing of the microbiome. So I know that you say candida can't be cured by diet alone, and I, and I agree with that from my own experience. But how important is it adhering to the diet? For example, again, being a researcher, we know that glucose or sugar helps yeast cells grow, right? In the, in, the, in the laboratory dish, correct? Right. So does it help in the stomach dish? If you're, sure, if you're, if, if you're consuming a lot. Yeah. So if you're, so again, when I hear stories where patients say, oh, I was living on pizza, pasta, and, and cookies, that in itself is somewhat of a risk to develop yeast overgrowth. You know, the whole world eats pizza and, and pasta and, and cookies, and that the whole world doesn't have yeast infections. It's just if you take an antibiotics or one of the other drugs and you have a yeast overgrowth, your symptoms are worse when you eat those things. Right. Also, again, so right, it can be cumulative, you know, like we were talking about. And I will say, unfortunately, too, so many young people that I even see today have been on long courses of antibiotics for acne, for chronic sinus infections. So right. it's not, and unfortunately, it was in the food supply. Let's let's be honest about that. So. Again, again, it's something to be aware of. The wheat also, for a long time, I didn't really understand. And as you said, you know, the yeast in bread is not what causes the yeast in your stomachs. But again, the, I guess more of the recent literature seems to indicate what they do to the bread these days. And the wheat, it, it raises your glycemic index. Again, so almost like eating a cookie. So again, I'm asking you because you're, you know, one of the experts on this. Again, do you think eating bread is something that patients aren't with candida should avoid? Well, a lot of people allergic to wheat or they're sensitive to gluten or they're allergic to the yeast in bread so that it's an allergic reaction. 
And they should also avoid eating yeasty, moldy cheeses and and fermented foods. Yeah, that makes sense. I know you mentioned like ricotta is one of the cheeses because I know my patients, one of the things that even kills them more than giving up sugar is giving up cheese. Certain cheeses I have listed in my packet. And what about alcohol? I know patients too will like to relax a little bit, especially in New York. We have a very stressful uh, city where I practice. <laughs> the beer and the wine have yeast in them. And that, so having the yeast itself is not a good thing. Obviously, right. yeah. You can your anti-candida antibodies cross-react with the anti-Saccharomyces antigens and the beer and the wine, but they can drink distilled alcohol where the the yeast has been removed. Okay, so they can have their vodka. Okay, what about some other foods? I'm just going to think like mushrooms and. Um you know, well, is it cause, mold. so? It's a mold, so they really should avoid that. And corn, again, corn. They say because it's it, it raises sugar levels. I mean, this is all from Crook's original diet. That's why I'm right. A lot of patients, for some reason, are allergic to corn. They can't tolerate. So you think it. it's more of an allergic issue? Okay. And what about potatoes? Which obviously, again, too, we know is a very high glycemic food. Yeah, you're talking about vegetables that have starch, which right. is broken down to sugar, and so. I tell patients that you should do challenge tests, food challenges. If you eat something and it makes you sick, don't eat it again. So you you will learn what foods you can and cannot eat. But a lot of times patients develop symptoms regardless what they eat. Well, yeah. Well, I find a lot of patients don't are we're finding more and more are not tolerating the simple carbohydrates, and that could be either due to candida, it could be due to small bacterial overgrowth, something called SIBO. So, and of course, it could be due to gluten diseases, which are being more understood now. That it's not just celiac; there's whole things with gluten enteropathy and and stuff like that. Okay. But you know, they should be tested for these things. Are they, well, you it's know, not they always a strict, on a very strict diet for the rest of their life? Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, and I try to, when I work with patients, I try to, over time, introduce to them. And between being on this statin or an antifungal, or I do what's called immunotherapy, you know, where I try to build up their immune system to see if they can tolerate, you know, any of these yeasty kind of foods if they're, if they're allergic. Let's get to the last thing I want to get to with this is supplements. And really the main supplement I really want to focus on, even though there are a couple of other things, is probiotics. Are they helpful or – Absolutely. Why absolutely? Yeah. I know I read your material. I just read something recently too. Actually, it was in a study. They're saying, you know, maybe they're, even the, the probiotics are too narrow. I mean, for probiotics to really be beneficial, it should be a wide spectrum. You know, most of them have lactobacilli and bifidus bacteria – why, why do you say they're very helpful? You feel like they restore, help restore the natural microbiome? Well, they don't stick. You know, they, you take the pills and most of it just goes right through and out the other end. But what they do is while, while they're in the intestine, they promote a natural environment that allows the, the really friendly bacteria, the the an obligate anaerobes to grow back. Well, like you said in your in your materials, but you know, there's no probiotics that contain anaerobes. Just for our listeners, those are bacteria that don't live off of oxygen. So it's really the obligate yeah. anaerobes that they absolutely cannot tolerate oxygen. Right. So, but they don't have that in probiotics right now. They, they there's there's no way of, of actually doing that. So the probiotics are in fact 
aerobes. They they use oxygen, correct? Yeah, or they're microaerophilic, or uh, they're uh, facultative, which means they can grow either in the presence or the absence of oxygen. So it turns out that the lactobacilli and the bifidobacterium are aerotolerant anaerobes. Okay. In other words, they're not killed by oxygen. So they survive in the big fermentation vats where they've grown up to to sell the commercial product. I think eventually we will see the the really friendly bacteria sold as probiotics, but that's in the future. Yeah, I agree. Actually, this brings up a very important point, by the way, too, because and I saw this in the patient today, you know, who asked, got a hold of me, said, please, Dr. Mitchell, go over some of these things, what I can and what I can't eat. And, you know, what confuses a lot of patients, too, they hear in the lay uh, press, fermented foods are good for you, sauerkraut, kimchi, you know, these type of things. Oh, kimchi has yeast in it. You're not supposed to eat yeast. Right, that's, yeast. that's what I wanted to say, that patients need to realize if you have this issue with candida overgrowth, fermented foods are not good for you until maybe at some point when you're really in good balance, right? Is that the the appropriate thing? Well, again, you do food challenge, and it, they can try to eat some sauerkraut, for example, and if it doesn't make them sick, they they can eat it. But really, the the taking the probiotic capsules is the best way. Okay. What about also the coconut oil, a monolaurin? A lot of them like to try to use that to inhibit yeast or molybdenum or caprylic acid. What do you think about or garlic? Yeah, they all have antifungal activity, but I think that they're not strong enough. They're right. They're just too weak. Right. And sometimes people are loading up so much garlic, they lose a lot of friends, and it's just not worth it. <laughs> well, I think that uh, the body sees the oils as food and and uh, digests them. So I don't think they're absorbed. They just stay in the intestine and are digested. Well, we have covered so much on this topic of candida. I don't know if there's another podcast or video out there, listeners, that covered so much ground and will provide so much useful information. I want to thank Dr. Marjorie Crandell for making the time to come on the podcast today. Her yeast consulting service is a, an incredibly valuable resource that people can find her online, and anyone struggling with candida will benefit from her work. I want to thank all my listeners. I want to encourage you to contact me on my Facebook page, Dean Mitchell MD, to let me know any topics you are interested in hearing about and any questions you may have, and I will do my best to respond. Thank you again, Dr. Crandell, for making the time today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.